Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Every Friday, I'll re-release one of my favorite conversations from the archives. Unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just may get something completely different listening to it this time around. I no longer think of neurodiversity as like a political stance or, a, or even a movement. I think of it as a living fact, like biodiversity. And we can pathologize it endlessly and say, you know, that all these variations are diseases or syndromes or whatever, which was the approach for most of the 20th century. Or we can celebrate that diversity as a, a gift to our society that requires us to be responsible and to provide people with whatever they need to achieve success in whatever form their success would be. Welcome to the Till Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's conversation is one I am so excited to share with you. My guest is Steve Silberman, a science writer who authored the 2015 book Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, a brilliant book that upends conventional thinking about autism and suggests a broader model for acceptance, understanding, and full participation in society for people who think differently. Steve's articles have appeared in Wired, The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Financial Times, The Boston Globe, The MIT Technology Review, Nature, Salon, Shambhala Sun, and many other publications. In April 2016, Steve gave the keynote speech at the United Nations for World Autism Awareness Day. He's also given talks on the history of autism at Yale, Harvard, MIT, Oxford, the National Academy of Sciences, Queen Mary University, Apple, Microsoft, Google, the 92nd Street Y, and more. His TED Talk, The Forgotten History of Autism, has been viewed more than a million times and translated into 25 languages. Having this conversation with Steve about neurodifference, acceptance, tolerance, changing cultures, systemic change, and much more was such a thrill and honor. Asher and my husband Darren can attest to the fact that I got off our interview feeling motivated and inspired about where we are going in this revolution to change the way difference is perceived and experienced in the world. I can't wait to share it with you. If you want to help me amplify these messages and spread our conversation far and wide, I invite you to share this episode with your communities online and offline. And if you aren't already signed up for my Tilt Parenting newsletter, I would love for you to join me. Every Thursday, I send out a short email, including a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast and bonus after the show video, and links to five must-read articles from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Just visit TiltParenting.com and sign up where it says join the Tilt Revolution. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve. Hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Debbie, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for asking me to be on the show. Oh, my goodness. Well, the honor is mine. I'm super excited to be bringing you to the Tilt Parenting audience. And I really wanted to introduce your work, Neurotribes. I'm sure many people in my audience have read the book or are familiar with it. And there are probably a lot of people who aren't who are new to this journey. So maybe we could just start if you could tell us a little bit about Neurotribes, the book, what your big goal was in writing it and who it's aimed at. Sure. 
Well, the inspiration to write it was the fact that uh, in 2001, I wrote an article about autism in high-tech communities like Silicon Valley. Uh, it was an article called The Geek Syndrome that appeared in Wired. And um, the article came out right after 9-11. So I figured that, you know, hardly anyone would have time to read it or care about it. But instead, what happened was I got email about the article for 10 years. And that's very, very unusual for a magazine article. Usually they're forgotten overnight. And the emails, many of which were from parents, actually, were about very basic problems in accessing services for their kids on the spectrum. Uh, I also got lots of emails from people who are on the spectrum themselves who were unable to you know, ever find a job, even if they had been told they were prodigies when they were young, because they couldn't make it through a face-to-face -face interview. And so these emails were very heart-wrenching and really had to do with very basic failure of society to provide reasonable support and accommodations for people on the spectrum and their families. And it was causing a tremendous amount of, you know, just the sheer volume of human suffering that I read about practically every week for 10 years after uh, my article came out. Meanwhile, a funny thing was happening, which was that the entire world was becoming obsessed with autism. Uh, but they were what they were becoming obsessed with was the question uh, as to whether or not vaccines cause autism. And this, too, was also causing a tremendous amount of human suffering because, uh, in fact, I remember reading on an anti-vaccine website uh, this woman saying that, you know, basically the day that she ruined her, her life and her daughter's life was the day that she brought her daughter for, for a measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. And so people were really suffering from these ideas that were constantly being argued about online, while meanwhile no one was talking about what families and autistic people, i.e. the people really on the front lines of autism, were having to deal with, which didn't really have to do with vaccines or what causes autism or whatever but it had to do with a failure of society to support them. You know, it was like every article you read for, for that whole decade, practically, even in very deeply reported newspapers like the New York Times, would always say, we don't really know why the number of autism diagnoses, you know, keeps going up. And I thought, really? Ten years have passed. We don't really know? Like, why don't we know this? And so as a science writer... I took it upon myself to start going back through autism history to try to figure out where the concerns of the mainstream media, which seem to be all about vaccines, and the concerns of parents and autistic people, which seem to be all about accessing services, where those two interests diverged. And what I discovered in the course of my research was that the history of autism as it had been uh, sort of repeated over and over again in thousands of textbooks and Wikipedia was incorrect. And that if you understood the correct timeline of autism's discovery, that it was a lot easier to understand why the estimates of prevalence and number of diagnoses started to soar in the 1990s. 
And so my book is basically the story of how societal attitudes and medical models and disability rights politics changed around autism over the course of 80 years in order to try to answer questions that were literally keeping parents up at night and preventing autistic people from having, uh, you know, as productive and safe and secure lives as they possibly could. Well, it's a fascinating story. And as you're saying that, my son, Asher, who's 13 now, was, you know, born in 2004. So I very much remember the Andrew Wakefield study and, you know, reading all about that. And that was a discussion among many parents in my peer group about the vaccination connection. And so it's really just interesting, you know, in those 13 years, we've come along in terms of understanding the science better. Um, and I know your TED Talk specifically talks about that study. When did you do your TED Talk about autism? I did the TED Talk about, I guess it was about three years ago. It was uh, several months before the book came out. Um, it was sort of a lucky break in a sense that I got asked to do a TED Talk because I had done a presentation uh, for a sort of a live performance group in San Francisco on the woman who invented the icons for the Macintosh, Susan Kerr. And the people who saw that liked the presentation. And then they were invited to give a series of talks at TED three years ago. And so they, they said, well, you can talk about anything you want. And I said, well, I have this book coming out in a few months. You know, Do you want me to talk about that? And the reason why I talked specifically about a very basic, very simplified explanation of what's explained in much more detail in my book is that I felt like parents had been bombarded by misinformation and controversy and arguments and just so much anger on every side. You know, the anti-vaccine people were angry at Big Pharma. And I had written about Big Pharma for Wired. I was a senior science writer for Wired for like 15 years. I knew that Big Pharma was very capable of doing terrible things, but were they doing a terrible thing about vaccines? And the more that I looked into that, you know, Andrew Wakefield is a liar. Let me just say that up front. But when I started my book, I did not take that approach. I thought that Andrew Wakefield might be a very uh, sincere and earnest scientist who tended to be sloppy because everyone knew that his study was badly run and, the, and that there were ethical concerns and that, you know, it came out that he had a patent for an alternate vaccine formulation that he hoped would be adopted after the MMR was, you know, made the object of fear and terror. But the more that I studied the history of autism, which Andrew Wakefield continually misrepresented, it was very obvious to me after several years of research that what Andrew had done was... I had, I had him on tape saying, I didn't know anything about autism before I did my study, you know, his famous study. And so what he did was he really, he read this book called The Age of Autism that was put together by the, the biggest anti-vaxxers on the web. And he just appropriated their history, which was wrong. And how do I know that? Because I read the same papers that they did, and they continuously misrepresented them. So after a while, I stopped thinking of Andrew Wakefield as a true believer and just started to think of him as a fraud. But the problem is that the anti-vaccine movement and Andrew Wakefield did something that was very useful for parents in a way, in that everyone knew 
that for some set of unknown reasons, until my book came out, the number of diagnoses started to soar in the, in the uh, early 90s. Everyone knew that, but no one knew why. And so there was sort of a vacuum of, in a sense, storytelling about what had happened to produce that startling spike in diagnoses. And so what Wakefield and the anti-vaxxers did was provide parents with a story. And it was a story about the evils of big pharma and, you know, corrupt journalists and all this. And it was a very emotionally compelling story. If you were a parent who was searching your three-year-old daughter's eyes for signs of eye contact, you very well might believe the story. There was only one problem with the story. It was false. But somebody had to figure out why it was false and what really happened. And so that's what I spent uh, five years of my life doing. Wow, I was going to ask how long it took you to write the book. I mean, it's so comprehensive. It's an incredible history of autism, you know, and how it was understood in different ways and the people who were the first to bring it into the forefront. So yeah, five years. So yeah, I I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, now I can laugh about it because it's over. But (laughs) uh, basically, what happened was, You know, I wrote a book proposal and my agent sold it to a publisher and the publisher expected that the book would take a year and a half to write. That was my original deadline and would be maybe 200 pages. Well, a year and a half in, I had written maybe three quarters of the introduction and half of the first chapter. And because I was a journalist who was used to, you know, really having to be very, very diligent about meeting deadlines, I felt like a total failure And eventually what happened was the book took five years to write. It ended up, I ended up handing in an 800 page manuscript and my publisher was very nice, but she was like, Hey Steve, you know, I mean, it's like (laughs) if we publish this at 800 pages, the people who most need to read it will never read it. And, and they were so right. I, you know, I mean, this is embarrassing to admit, but I didn't use any high tech, you know, software or anything to write the book. It was a word file for five years. It was a single word file. And so I didn't even really, like, this is a secret. I haven't even really said this in public, but I didn't even really know how long it was until I got an advanced reading copy. And I was like, oh, my God, it looks like a phone book. No wonder I've been sitting here for five years. We'll be right back after this quick break. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. 
Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Oh my goodness. Well, it is. I mean, and I'm I'm an author as well and I slave over my books and you know, each one feels like giving birth to a, a child. I I can't even imagine five years on the same project and the level, you know, just the, the depth that you go into, it's it's really an incredible work. So I guess congratulations three years after it came out, but it's really a phenomenal book. Well, thank you. I wanted to ask you a question. When you started to notice that Asher was different, did you ever feel like you were kind of bombarded with negative messaging about what could be happening to him and what his potential was? That's such a good question. I've never been asked that. Um, I was so much in kind of damage control and focused on the behavioral issues. And it was, he's a very complicated person. He has multi, multiple diagnoses as many differently wired people do. And there was such a lack of clarity about what might be going on. So I think I was just so caught up in, you know, making sure that things on the playground went okay, or managing damage control with the the big meltdowns and things that were happening. So I would say no. And as soon as I got that diagnosis, uh, you know, at first it was PDD NOS when he was, I think, six or five, and then autism spectrum disorder right before he turned nine, I was already in kind of immersed in the, the research and feeling, I guess, inspired and motivated about his That's potential. Good. So, yeah. I mean, there was, well, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is that there were really a couple of generations of parents that heard nothing but bad news, you know, about their kids' potential, like doctors would say, I mean, I literally, I think I have a quote in the book, this is a fate worse than death, but you must learn to bear it. And it came along with all kinds of parent blaming, because the prevailing theory among psychoanalysts uh, for most of the 20th century was that autism was caused by, you know, so-called refrigerator parenting. And so for a couple of generations, not only did you have to deal with your child's difficult behavior, but you had to deal with scorn and, and guilt 
from the rest of society because the leading authorities in psychiatry were saying that you caused your child's condition. So I have to say that as I've you know gone on book tour and stuff, there, there were times when I get to meet these really older parents whose kids were diagnosed in the, you know, even in the 50s. Uh, and I am so in awe of their ability to not only take care of their kids, but to fight to change laws so that all disabled kids, not even just kids with autism, but so that all disabled kids would have access, equal access to education. It's really like... One of the things that I, that I became really sad about in the course of writing the book was that by the time I started writing Neurotribes, the parents' movement had really sort of crystallized around the anti-vaccine thing. And if you were not anti-vaccine, you were anti-parent, you know, I would read a lot in online forums and comment threads. But that was not how the parent movement started. The parent movement was originally very motivated to change the world so that their kids would have a better life in the future and the kids like theirs would have a better life in the future. Right. I, I sort of feel like one virtue of, I mean, this is a whole other subject, but one virtue of the neurodiversity movement, which we can explain and talk about in a minute, but is that it's moved parents more towards the original mission of the parents' movement in autism, which was to change the world so that it was a better place for the kids. That's great to hear. I mean, that's why I started Tilt Parenting. That's what I'm all about, because I don't believe anybody's broken here. I believe this is a modern evolution and that our kids shouldn't have to try to fit into any sort of box that wasn't designed for them. Yeah, sure. And those boxes, you know, you mentioned that Asher got, you know, multiple diagnoses and that the diagnoses perhaps even changed over time or whatever. It's like all these all these diagnostic boxes, I feel like they're just these very narrow and sort of contingent lenses through which we're looking at a living thing, which is the diversity of human minds. And that's just a biological fact. People say to me, you know, well, do you support neurodiversity? I don't, it exists whether I support it or not. It's, I don't, I no longer think of neurodiversity as like a political stance or, a, or even a movement. I think of it as a living fact, like biodiversity. And mm -hmm. we can pathologize it endlessly and say, you know, that all these variations are diseases or syndromes or whatever, which was the approach for most of the 20th century. Or we can celebrate that diversity as a, a gift to our society that requires us to be responsible and to provide people with whatever they need to achieve success in whatever form their success would be. Absolutely. You, yes. I'm just, I'm just loving hearing this all from you. You're totally echoing, you know, my belief system. And I know that of so many of our listeners here, as you were um, sharing that, I was reminded of a conversation I had with Asher. We were having a picnic in um, Fondle Park, which is just down the street from us. Oh, and I love Fondle Park. I love know. It. It's a great love little it. spot. <laughs> but I, I was telling Asher and my husband about this article I had read, and it, I think I even pulled it up on my phone, and the headline was something 
associating the risks of being autistic with, I think it was maybe Pitocin. I don't know. It was something in childbirth. And he cut me off and he's like, the risks? What do you mean yeah. the risks? What do they think it is? A disease? And I was right. like, yeah, good point, Ash. Good yeah. point. You know, and right. all that language, you know, as soon as I see that word epidemic or any of that kind of language, I'm instantly, they've lost me. Um, I think that's harmful. Oh, I know. And I, I have to tell you, this is something that I, I think I left out of the book, but it was very interesting. There's a group in America called Autism Speaks, and they were basically the biggest game in town for autism fundraising and, uh, you know, charity walks and all that uh, for a long time because their founders were very, very well connected in both Hollywood and, and media and government. And I remember that when the CDC revised up its estimate of autism prevalence uh, several years ago while I was writing the book, they had a teleconference and the head of the CDC, this guy, Thomas Frieden, you know, said, well, you know, we're up revising our estimate, but it doesn't mean that there's been a true increase in the incidence of autism. You know, we're, we're thinking that it's probably because of better community awareness. And the president of Autism Speaks at that time came out uh, to the microphone and read from a Merriam-Webster dictionary the definition of the word epidemic. And he said, autism is now officially an epidemic in the United States. Nobody else on the panel had said anything like that. In fact, they had said the opposite. And so finally, I, I found out that the person who told them to go out there was the former chief science officer of Autism Speaks, and I won't say her name because I'm not here to humiliate anyone, but I ended up interviewing her and I said, why did you use the word epidemic? It's such an inflammatory word. And she said, well, that wasn't for parents to hear. That was for policymakers to hear. If you say something like, well, there seems to be an increase in prevalence, but that may be because of community. Nobody listens. But if you say the word epidemic, that gets their attention, you know? And so she had said that word on every major national news show that night. And who's listening? You know, is it congressmen? Sure, a couple, probably. But millions of parents are listening. And they're terrified. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's the parents who are terrified that that might happen to their child. It's the parents of neurotypical kids who are so grateful it didn't happen to their child. And it perpetuates this idea that it's a negative thing. And yeah. and then it's autistic people themselves who feel marginalized every time it's used. That's really upsetting to hear and not surprising at the same time. Yeah. So I'm curious, actually, then about the response among the autism community. I, I told you and when I first invited you on the podcast that when the book arrived, my son, I opened the Amazon package and he stole it from me before I had a chance to start <laughs> so reading great. it. And um, he loved the book and, you know, it was really insightful. It was super inspiring and parts of it were really difficult for him to kind of grapple with as he learned more about his tribe and the history um, of autistic people and how they've been treated. But how as the autism community as a whole responded to both your book and then you as an advocate for the community? Well, uh, let's start by saying there is no such thing as the autism community as a whole. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> there are autistic individuals. You yes. Know? yes. Um, the good news is that the vast majority of autistic feedback that I've gotten for the book has been uh, incredibly positive, if not sort of ecstatically thankful. So I'm incredibly touched and grateful and humble for that feedback. It's been wonderful to see. And it's been great because autistic people will give the book to their parents so that they, you know, feel better understood in their families. And autistic people were definitely one of the groups that I was trying to write for. Um, I was actually, I actually had three groups in mind when I was writing the book. One was autistic people themselves one was parents, particularly parents who were sort of on the fence about vaccines and whether or not there was an autism epidemic. And the other was re clinicians and researchers, because I knew that even people who had been in the field for 40 or 50 years did not know the details of, for instance, how Hans Asperger you know, ran this clinic in the midst of a country that was being taken over by the Nazis and you know, without getting into contemporary politics too much, let's just say that I had no idea that the Nazi passages in my book would become so relevant virtually overnight again. And that's a frightening thing. But in any, in any case, what was hard was that if you think about it, those three groups all have very different agendas. You know, the clinicians and researchers are interested in improving their medical understanding of autism, you know, but that can lead to stuff like words like risk and, you know, causation theories and whatnot. Um, parents want to build a better world for their children and, you know, just want their kids to be happy and have good lives. But that, that doesn't always mean that they are always in line with what autistic self-advocates want. And autistic self-advocates and neurodiversity activists can sometimes be very angry at parents because they see parents as trying to speak for them, you know, with groups like Autism Speaks. So it wasn't just that there were three groups with three very different agendas. You know, the dark secret is that they were all kind of at each other's throats in a way. Like, the you know, the autistic self-advocates really didn't trust the researchers and clinicians because they were aware of this long history of abuse and bogus theories and, you know, all that. So it was what took me five years, really, was trying to come up with a book that would speak to all of those groups. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Now, within the autistic community specifically, as I say, the vast majority of the feedback has been tremendously positive. There is a small but loud minority of autistic people, and I mean really small, but sometimes really loud, who think I shouldn't have written the book because I'm not autistic myself. I'm neurotypical. And I think they have a valid point. You know, imagine if a guy came along and said, I'm going to write the definitive history of feminism. You know, <laughs> or white guy wrote the, you know, the big book on the civil rights movement. And I'm gay, you know. And so if I heard, oh, there's this new book that everyone's reading about gayness that was written by a straight guy, I'd be like, <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, I'd read it. Yeah. I wouldn't dismiss it, you know. But uh, in any case, I can't help that. I came, I was born this way. I can't change, you know. <laughs> I came to autism because I was a, a very well-established science writer at Wired. So I did not come to autism through a personal or family connection. And one thing that I think is really interesting is that one of the most frequent reactions that I get from everyone, pretty much, when I tell them I wrote a book about autism, they say, oh, do you have a child on the spectrum? And I don't. And what's weird about that is that if you think about it, I mean, autism is a huge thing. Society has been enmeshed in controversies about autism for at least 20 years and, in fact, much longer. Autism is also very common. You know, lots of people are on the spectrum. So why wouldn't a science writer write about it? And I think the reason that people ask me that is because of a sort of holdover belief that autism is rare and so that you wouldn't write about it 
unless you, in a sense, were forced to by your fate. And I wrote about it by choice because I thought that families and autistic people were suffering much more than uh, they should. So in terms of me being neurotypical, yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I hope that in both my books and my talks that I have tried to be as good an ally uh, to the autism rights movement as I could. And I often, when people ask me to do talks or whatever, I often say, well, could we do a panel where I talk to autistic self-advocates? And I try to, you know, in a sense, deflect the spotlight onto autistic voices as much as I can. Hmm, That's great. I was curious about that. And um, I know there is a very active, actually, autistic community that I follow on Twitter. And, um, but in many ways, I think you're exactly right. It isn't a rare thing. You're a science writer, you're kind of the perfect person to write this book. And I think, you know, a parent who has a child on the spectrum or someone on the spectrum, this would have been a different book, not to say a less valuable book, but a different book. Yeah. And and also, I mean, I don't want to dwell on those negative reactions and they have every right to them. But a, a couple of people have said like, well, an autistic person should have written this book. You know, why, why did this guy do this? And it's like, I did the historical work. It's not like I copied stuff, you know, from the neurodiversity movement or the autism rights movement. It's true that the last part of the book is about the autism rights movement, but it's not like the whole book, you know, was just laying out there on people's blogs, you know, <laughs> waiting for me to come along and scoop it up. You know, I had to do unbelievable, obsessive, dare I say, even autistic like deep dives into uh, historical archives. And, uh, you know, I've never read so many case histories in my life. And I also, and in fact, this, I, I want to tell you this quick story. One of the first things that I did for the book that turned out to be one of the most important things that I ever did for the book was that I went to a an autistic retreat called Autreat. So it was a retreat run by autistic people for autistic people. I had to get an exemption, actually, as a neurotypical observer because normally it was just for autistic people. So I spent a week with a bunch of great autistic adults, uh, and there were some kids there, but mostly it was people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And it was one of the most liberating, stress-free, delightful, bluntly honest, you know, environments I've ever been in. In other words, I was immersed in autistic culture. And when I came back from that, for one thing, the neurotypical world, the so-called real world, you know, uh, seemed awful. It was like, you know, everyone was constantly pushing, you know, their own ego trips and lying slightly for social grease, you know. And kind of, in fact, I remember this hilarious moment at Autry when I had met this guy the night before. And so I saw him the next morning. And so I did the neurotypical thing. And I went up to him and I said, Hey, buddy, how did you sleep? And he said, Why? And it was actually a really good question, you know. Why was I making this, you know, small talk? So um, it was challenging in a good way. And when I got back to my desk where I'm sitting right now to really, you know, tackle writing neurotribes, I, you know, I start writing a description of what autism is and, 
you know, it was sort of a distillation of a thousand textbooks I'd read. And I, I st- literally stopped myself and I said, Steve, what are you doing? These people are not like this. You were just with them for a week. You know, they're full human beings. You can't say that, well, autistic people don't get humor and irony. Are you kidding? Like, they were incredibly witty and ironic, (laughs) cunningly witty and ironic, you know, at times. So the experience of being immersed in autistic culture just for a week was like a bath that washed away my stereotypes before I started writing. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that story. I love it. So... All right. I have one more question before we end this conversation, which I wish could just go on and on. But one of my biggest goals is to help parents like me and, you know, tilt serves parents with differently wired kids of all kinds of neurodiversity. And I really believe that we as parents of these kids are in the best possible position to try to push the needle forward in terms of how our kids and neurodiverse people in general are treated in the educational system and society and so forth. I'm curious to know what thoughts you have on how maybe where you see the neurodiversity movement going or how we as a community of engaged parents can play a role in pushing that forward. Well, one thing I like are parents, organizations or blogs and whatnot that are open to listening to the voices of autistic adults, because I think it's really important. I think the future, well, even the present, but also the future of the neurodiversity movement is in neurodivergent individuals joining together with parents rather than seeing them as the enemy. You know, some parents are the enemy and, you know, some neurodiversity activists are really rough to work with, but in general, I think if a bridge of allyship could be built between those two communities, that it can be so powerful that it can change the world in a single generation. And I'll give you uh, actually two concrete examples. There's a website called The Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. I believe it's thinkingautism.com. And it's, you know, it was started by two parents, one of whom is autistic herself, as well as having a significantly disabled autistic son. And in fact, even the neurotypical parent, Shannon Rosa, who I write about at great length in Neurotribes, um, her son is significantly disabled. So when people say, oh, this neurodiversity stuff, is just for the quote unquote high functioning chatty Aspies or whatever, that's wrong. The neurodiversity movement is an outgrowth of the disability rights movement, and the disability rights movement did not get started by people leaving the people in wheelchairs behind. You know, mm-hmm. it's a movement for for everyone in society, in a sense, and certainly for all kinds of disabled people. So thinkingautism.com, I think is, a, I'm pretty sure that's the URL, is a great model of a blog, you know, that is read by a lot of parents, that is staffed by parents but that also includes the voices of autistic adults, some of whom are also parents. So I think that's a paradigm for an institution that's the future. Another thing that I would recommend to your audience is a a different book than mine, (laughs) Uniquely Human by Barry Prezant. Yes. I'm trying to get him on the show. (laughs) Oh, I can put in a good word for him. Oh, awesome. (laughs) He is wonderful and You know, if your child has difficult behavior, uh, reading Uniquely Human uh, will give you ways of thinking about it. 
you know, it's not a, it's, there's not much overlap with my book, but the two books came out uh, virtually the same month, I think. And both Barry and I immediately recognized that they were like sister books in a way. My book was the history and his book was the lessons of the applied history in a sense. And one of the reasons why Barry's book is so good is because he's, he's listened to autistic people, both his clients and, and other autistic people, for, for decades now. So it's informed by autistic experience, but it's a book that's really written for parents. So, you know, that's a good book. There's another book out there called The Real Experts that was written by autistic people um, that is, uh, has some very hopeful and inspiring messages from autistic people to young autistic people. And, you know, I think autistic peer mentoring is really important. I've seen the magic that can happen when even a nonverbal kid hangs out with an autistic adult who is verbal, you know, and there's so many times these days you hear, well, you know, low, quote unquote, low functioning people and high functioning people, they don't even have the same condition. Well, if you put uh, a nonverbal child with uh, uh, an autistic adult who can talk, you often see that they relate to one another. And Temple Grandin talks about this too from personal experience, that there's a kind of a, you know vibe that they can get on that is good for both of them. And so I think autistic peer mentoring is going to be a, a really big thing in the future. And so those are the, the directions that I see us going. That's great. Thank you. And thank you for sharing those resources. And I will make sure they're all on the show notes pages. So listeners, you can check out the Yes, the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism and all the books that Steve has recommended. And Steve, I again, I wish we could go on, but I um, I'm going to let you get on with your day. And I just want to say thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation. And I'm grateful just for your insight and your perspective and your stories. And you're apparently were the first to find out a few inside scoops about your book. So that's kind of cool, too. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And it's been a delight. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Steve's website, his book, Neurotribes, and the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 91. And don't forget to check out my after the show short video where I share my top takeaways from my conversation with Steve. You'll find a link on the show notes page, or you can go straight to tiltparenting.com slash after the show. If you enjoy the Tilt podcast and would like to help me cover the costs of producing it, please consider signing up for my Patreon campaign. Patreon is a simple membership platform that allows people to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, to fund the show. If you want to help, visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Lastly, if you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you would take a minute and just head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. That really helps our podcast get noticed in the crowded parenting podcast space. Thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? 
My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.